Bereavement Room is a podcast for our community, faith and culture, featuring representative voices from across the UK. And I am your host, Kolsima Ali. I'm Lydia Akoble, and you are listening to the amazing Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Tasneem Chowdhury, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hey, I'm Lakani Chowa, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, I'm Hena Shah, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, it's Amar, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hi, this is Vai Ramu, and you're listening to the Bereavement Room podcast. Hello, I am Nifwit Khan Madawas, and you are listening to the Bereavement Room podcast with Kusuma Ali. Thank you for stopping by. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Bereavement Room podcast. So this week's guest is Kawinda Sindinsa. He's a Sikh Derby man and he's going to be talking to us about his father who died by suicide in 2006. This episode is dedicated to our grandfathers and fathers. Thank you for listening. I am thrilled to be joined by Sikh Derby man, Cal Winder Sindinsa. Hi, Cal. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We've been talking about this for some time now and we've made it happen. Uh, So, yeah, thank you so much. And I know that today you're going to be talking to us about mental health and what the impact of suicide was like for you and you'll be sharing your story with us so so before we kind of get into that like because my audience and my guests they all love to know about where people are from and what they do and kind of like what they're up to at the moment do you want to give us a bit of background into like who you are where you're from and what you do yeah, my name's Cal Singh Dinsa, as has been said. Um, I'm 40 years old, a father of two, married. I live in Derby, and um, I'm currently working as a science technician at a school, a secondary school not too far from here. I'm currently at home, though, obviously with the coronavirus pandemic. Um, prior to that, I used to be a teacher of science at the same school, but in the last uh, few years, I've decided to take a step back uh, uh, and concentrate on my writing as well in my free time. So I'm an author, a writer and a poet, as well as uh, uh, someone who works at a school. Lovely. Well, what, um, what's the title of your book? Share with us. Uh, give us a bit of info on what they're about. Well, the first book I uh, released was uh, a book about the death of my father by suicide. It was called uh, My Father and the Lost Legend of Pear Tree, Part 1. Mm. And I released that four years ago um, in 2016 now. And that was uh, 10 years after my father died by suicide. So it took me a long time to put it together, to write it, to complete it. Mm. But uh, I eventually managed to release it in 2016. Two years later, I released uh, part two of that story, My Father and the Lost Legend of Pear Tree, part two. In between that, I wrote books. uh, I compiled a book about my old school, Homeland's, um, Homeland School. Uh, and after that, I, since then, I've, uh, I've written a lot more poetry, poetry and released a lot more poetry 
in relation to mental health and identity and my culture mm. and just about general feelings I have in my mm. everyday existence. And I just wanted to share that with people. And I just wanted, if anything, I wanted to um, be able to write things and then be able to share those things with people. And to be honest, writing has helped me a lot to get things off my chest, I feel. Mm, yeah journaling writing poetry uh, that's something that I personally love and I've heard it quite a lot on the podcast a lot of our guests have gratitude journals or they you know participate in sort of creative stuff to kind of get what they're feeling out on paper uh, in words so that's that's really lovely to hear and uh, well congratulations on your books I'd be you. I'd love to read them um uh, as you say you write poetry I don't know if it's okay with you but perhaps at the end of the episode you'd like to share one of the poems you've written yeah in the last um, year and a bit I've released well I've written about 200 plus wow um, they yeah. they tend to be quite short, if anything. There's only, mm. there's only the rare few that are very long. But my po- my poems tend to just be very short and to the point. And most of them are written on my walks. So I go out, I have a, a thought in mind, and the, the, the pace that I walk at, the natural rhythm I walk at, allows me to, you know, um, write as I'm walking along. So that's that's why I love walking as well. But obviously in recent times um i've not done a lot of walking but i'm currently in the process of releasing another poetry collection so maybe maybe i'll release that soon as well that would be lovely and do do share with us do share it on social media i know our guests and our audience would love to hear it um you and i talk about charities quite a lot offline yeah and I I kind of wanted to open up the dialogue uh, in your episode about that because it's not something that I've spoken in great detail with my other guests about. So there are some challenges, I feel, with having our voices heard within mainstream charities. And when I say our voices, I mean, you know, the other. So if you identify as black or Asian or Sikh or Muslim... Yeah. Uh, the BAME label, maybe we could use that label there. Yeah. Uh, it can be incredibly difficult to get our voices heard. And it's not that we don't have a voice. We're often not empowered to use them or those opportunities aren't there. And I just, you know, we talk about it so often offline and I just thought we could share with our, with our listeners. Kind of what's your stance on that? What challenges have you had with your work that you do in mental health and you know the writing that you do and the charities that you've been in touch with is that something you're open in sharing with us yeah i'm happy to do that um obviously i've been doing my thing for the last 14 years now it was on march the 1st 2006 that my father passed away that he died by suicide and it took me a year or so before i began to um open up let's say talk about it it took me a while to talk, um, open up and talk about it because in my culture, in my society, um, well, let's be quite honest about this, um, suicide is a very taboo topic, right? It's not something that is generally talked about. And if it ever uh, comes up or people come across it, they tend to, um, in, in our 
community, let's say, they tend to um, bypass it uh, because they would rather talk about more positive things. And, you know, and I felt for a while originally after my father's death that it was something that I found very difficult to talk about because nobody wanted to talk about it. Mm. Um, when you when I did try and, you know, um, bring the subject up, I felt almost as if I had to be careful because uh, people didn't want to talk about stuff like that because they might have thought they just didn't know what to say or they might have thought I might come up with the wrong words and the wrong wording and I might upset this person further. And generally, I just felt that people just didn't want to talk. And also the terminology in relation to suicide. Now, ever since we've begun talking um, in this podcast, I've, I've kept referring to it as my father died by suicide. And um, I do that particularly because when I when it first occurred to me in terms of my father's death, um, I didn't know how what words to use and what words were comfortable to be using. So originally I might have if I wanted to talk about it, I might have said my father committed suicide or, mm. you know, things along that line. But the more I wanted to talk about it, the less I wanted to use that word commit suicide. Mm. And it was only when. I realized the connotations behind the word that I realized that, you know, back in the day, pre-1961, it was actually a crime to commit suicide. So mm. anyone who had committed suicide or tried to commit suicide but failed, they would have been seen to be a criminal. And yeah. uh, it was a criminal act previous to 1961. But obviously, after 1961, that was changed. So to try and commit suicide was no longer a crime. But even now, that word has a link to criminality. And that's one thing I never wanted to link with my father, this act of criminality. And there's, mm. a, poem, there's a poem I've written called Mind Your Language that kind of addresses that. So originally, it was very difficult to, you know, talk about suicide because of the terminology and so mm. on. So could I ask then, um, because it was, was it 14, 15 years ago when your dad died? Um, six, 14 years ago, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's 2020 now, so yeah, he passed away in 2006. Yeah. So when it was difficult to talk about that with people, and obviously there was a language issue here as well, and perhaps mental health wasn't discussed as openly back then as it is now. It has a far greater lens on it today, I would say. Yeah. Um, who was it difficult to speak to about that other than our community? Did yeah. you reach out to charities? Was there someone that well, the charities I'll get on to, but originally it was difficult to talk to anyone, including my wife, because I'd only been married for like six months, let's say. And I was in my teaching position for about the same amount of time. And I was doing an NQT whereby I had to pass that to become a proper teacher and so on. So there was a lot of stress and pressure on me. So I couldn't really talk to my wife. So writing helped me a lot because it helped me to get things out onto paper let's say and have these conversations in my mind now obviously when I released my book the natural thing I wanted to do was to reach out to certain charities and share with them my story this wasn't about sales for me you were trying to get them to promote my book to get a uh, you know become popular and famous and all that it was me trying to share my story about the death of my father by suicide in a particular community that finds it difficult to deal with that kind of stuff so therefore having gone to various events I got to know people I got to know 
well, let's call them famous folk that do engage in these kind of things and talk about their own mental health struggles. And there was one particular charity, I'm not going to name them, but I was um, directed to them saying, these lot do a great job. Tell them about your book, um, get them involved and, uh, you know, they can help you along. And I thought, great. And this was right at the beginning. So I got hold of this charity and I sent them... um, I sent them my book and they told me that they would, uh, you know, look into it and read it and then hopefully put it on their reading list. And I thought, great. But as the time went on, I kept getting in touch with them and saying, look, have you done it? You know, have you read it? And they kept almost like fobbing me off saying, look, um, such and such hasn't read it. We're going to give it to our the person in charge. I don't know what position they were, but they were in a higher position saying they would read it and then they would get back to me. And I kept getting back to them and saying, look, have you done it? And then at one point they actually did get back to me and I thought, brilliant, you know, a charity, this so-called great charity has got back to me and they're going to, it wasn't really a review I was after. It was more that I wanted them to say, I've read your book and we think it will be beneficial to the people that we help. Anyway, I um, opened Mm. up that email that day to read it and I was totally deflated by their response to it. It was done. It was was done so unprofessionally. I mean, minor little things like getting the title of my book correct, getting my name correct. Um, As I was reading their little uh, feedback, I won't call it a review because it wasn't a review and I wasn't really after that. As I was reading it, I realized that it was quite obvious they hadn't read my book. All they had done was read the back of it, the blurb and made some Mm -hmm. comments. Then they obviously had flicked through a few pages and picked up on certain segments and then tried to reflect that in their feedback. And what they reflected was totally wrong. They totally misconstrued what I was saying. And I felt so let down by them. And normally I'd say, normally I might respond um, in frustration or anger, but I was just so deflated. I just Mm. replied with, please do not ever get in touch with me again. I just left it at that. And have never engaged with them since because I was so let down. They had the opportunity to read my book and to put Mm. it out there to help others. And they totally blew it. Mm. And this is a well-known charity that is out there that makes out they do so much good. And they might do so much good in certain sectors and certain communities. But with me, they totally failed me. But the thing is, If and when I come out and call this charity out and say what I need to say, I'm then putting myself at risk with other charities. You might think this guy's a bit. uh, Yeah, I hear you. I hear you on that. You know, this guy's a bit too much. Mm. I did that with another charity. Again, I'm not going to name them, but they're one of the biggest charities they are. And I've tried a number of times to say, look, here's my story. I would like you to just possibly share it. And on a couple of occasions, they've said, look, we want you to write a blog for us. We want you to do this. We want you to do that. I'm thinking, hold on, I've been writing my blog. Here's my blog. Why do I need to replicate this again in a package for you? Yeah, um, yeah I hear that. Why? Why do I need to do that? I've already done yeah. it. It's in my book. I'm not asking you to you know, put <laughs> a link to my book on your website and say, look, here's this book. Read it, buy it. Um, I'm not asking. I'm just saying this is my story. Could you please share it? It might actually help someone. But they just refuse to do that. And ever since then, these so-called big charities, I've just not bothered with. But then again, there have been 
the odd big charity, and this one I will name, Papyrus, that have helped me. They have seen what I've been up to. They they do engage with me and, and they do share what I do on their platform that enables them to have this big audience to share what I do. And people mm -hmm. have been in touch with me. So well done to Papyrus. Yeah. But those are the charities that I'm not going to name. You know, their behavior yeah. is disgraceful. And it it puts it it makes me feel upset and deflated because I don't know you know it's it's, yeah, it's very you. deflating it's it's not it's nice heartening. yeah yeah I hear you I I have similar experiences I mean I've not read a book but about other things that I talk quite openly about that they are just not open in hearing and it's it's really quite sad. I mean, I, I will often talk about counseling and psychotherapy world and how that's operated and how that's yeah. run as a business. And I'm really sad to hear that. But I, before I go on to more detail, I just want to say shout out to Papyrus. That's not the first time that I've heard that Papyrus are very good at holding the community and uh, listening to a variety of people from all walks of life and supporting them. I've heard it from another guest yeah. on the show that has been helped when they were impacted by suicide. So I'm really glad that they helped you. Yeah. And I and I hear it is deflating. I know what that feeling is like. And uh, I, I worry for those charities because you've got movements like Charity So White that... Yeah. Are not are, are kicking the door down. They're not going to take this shit anymore. And if people, if cha if these cha so-called charities don't start waking up and looking at their EDI and speaking to people that don't fit a neat and tidy narrative, they're going to run into problems. Because, yeah. Because, yeah. Sorry, you mentioned business there, and that's how I see some of these charities. All they care about, really, they've lost sense of the original meaning of the word charity and what they're supposed to be doing. I've even written a poem about that called Charade, Charade. Um, but my point is, I think a lot of them, especially these bad ones, they're more concerned with uh, the celebrity nature yeah. of it and how many people they can um, get to jump on the bandwagon because such and such person has a following of a million or 200,000, mm. whereby people like me, although I am an author, although I am a po poet and I... I do engage with folk by sharing what I do, even though I'm actually quite a shy person and I don't really like doing this, but I feel compelled to do it because I want to share my father's story and those stories of others that have passed away. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel compelled, but sometimes I think they just think that this person now, nah, they're not going to get that much of a reach. And obviously with the, with these Asian communities, they're not going to do that well, even engaging with them. And to be, to be honest, there's, certain elements in my own community that don't help me either mm. um in, in relation to the religious uh, sector <laughs> yeah. yeah there's so many gudwaras here in derby and not one of them has ever come to me and said right we like what you do and we want you to come into our gudwaras and spread the message and share your story not one of them have done that they've said they would but they've never done anything practical to involve me and i think another Another reason, just like the charities, I think sometimes these people are afraid that if they get people like me involved, they can't necessarily control me. So they're a bit worried what I might say. And I might offend someone. I might offend the community. I might offend uh, a sangat, the congregation. And they might get in trouble for that. So they don't want people like me who have a voice and who are willing to stand up and, you know, 
sometimes possibly get themselves into trouble, but I do things for honest and pure yeah. reasons to help people. I don't do yeah. it just to make a name for myself. Yeah. And that's what lets me down with these so-called big charities and these so-called community leaders that make out that they have our best interests at heart. But really, it's all just a business to them. And they're more worried about how it's going to impact them. Mm, it's a shame when it goes down that road or it gets a bit political because we're here trying to help people, give people space to kind of share their lived experiences and what you want to do is share your lived experience in case it helps at least one person and that's something right that's that's something that's a reach so I would kind of say to that what do we do because we're not the only ones that are in this boat I think there'll be other people that resonate with this that listen to the podcast especially the former guests what can we do then in this instance well Obviously, the big charities have not, as I've said, have not been of great um, help to me, of great assistance. But over the years, I have um, engaged and involved myself with smaller charities, whether they be from my own community or not. And I found that sometimes it's nice to be involved with them and uh, be able to get my story out um, mm. using their various platforms as well. So, mm. you know, you must try and do that. And I am aware of certain charities that have been set up because someone has lost a family member and they've set themselves up as a charity to cater for, I don't know, bereavement and suicide in their own communities. And um, again, sometimes I have found that even with these so-called charities, sometimes they lose sense of what their original message is and you wonder why they're doing it. Again, it's almost as if they're doing it to... It's like a popularity contest and uh, they lose sight of what the original messages. And sometimes I've shown up at certain events and I'm just stuck. I'm just stuck. I'm just told to go and sit there in the corner and, uh, you know, talk. Be quiet. To people. You know, you're just you're there, but you're not there. And it's yeah. like, what's the point of me coming? Yeah. I could have done so much. I could have talked to so many people. But instead, I've talked to like five or six people. They don't understand how difficult it is for me right not necessarily to talk about what happened to me but to talk about it five or six times on the trot and mm. having the same conversation with six people and how tiring that is right mm. Mm. when you could just do it in front of 80 people in one go and yeah. just think how much of a benefit that would be but yeah. no they'd rather just call you up and have you say your thing and do your thing but only have it deliver it to about six or seven people and great if it only helps one pe one person brilliant because i have had people that have been in touch with me in the past saying look that was brilliant you know I'm, i was really impressed with what you said and it really helped me but it, it then makes me feel again deflated that i could have helped so many more if i was just given the opportunity to do so and you know it really is That's a uh, tough one it's gut wrenching tough. It is. And I, I would just like to say, keep carrying on. Just keep carrying on. I know it's hard. And obviously, when it gets really hard, give yourself a day off. That's OK. But uh, carry on because you do have a, a, a important message, an important story to tell. And there's a message that comes with that. And change can only really happen in, well, for us, it's incremental steps. 
so so do keep carrying on and obviously when it, it I know that it can get too much give yourself a day off go for that walk whether it's the education sector or in religion or in charity uh, when they try and reach out to make out they're actually doing something it's more of a case of just uh, tick you know ticking boxes uh, yeah a tick box activity that yeah. uh, they just want to show that look aren't, aren't we great look we, we're catering for this but really they're just checking things off and yeah, of the actual main reason why they're doing that you know it doesn't go deep enough and that's a real great shame yeah yeah it is very saddening and I struggle with that on a daily basis so I hear your pain and that kind of brings me to, if you're ready, yeah. to kind of go back to that day. Share your story with us. Where were you? What happened? A look back on who you were back then. recent event uh, a few days ago where a, uh, a medical consultant from Derby passed away. The first ever, the first yeah. ever Sikh uh, to take up that position. And unbelievably, that person pays, uh, plays a role in my story, what I'm going to share with you today, although I didn't know it at the time. So uh, I'll touch upon that in a second. But um, yeah, like I said, my father, Mahinder Singh Dinsa, passed away on March the 1st, 2006. And um, I reflect on that day in the first chapter of my book. Uh, and it, it started like any other normal day at the time. Uh, I came down the stairs having got changed. I was on my way to work, working at a school, an NQT science teacher. And previous to this, my father had been in a very, well, depressed state, let's say. His uh, own brother, uh, Mon Singh Dinsa, had uh, passed away by suicide only three, four months previously. So it really took its toll on my father. And ever since his brother had passed away, Life wasn't the same for him. But this particular day, I came downstairs. I saw my father sitting in the living room and he seemed to be dressed smartly. He seemed to he seemed to be happier, it seemed, because previously I'd seen him in a, a very darkened state. He wasn't he wasn't looking his usual. Um, not tidy self, but um, like proud self in terms of how he wore his clothing anyway i saw him and i thought this is a bit weird he's normally at work so what's he doing here today and uh, i realized he had the day off and uh, i thought oh great uh, he's, uh, he's got a day off and i didn't make too much conversation with him because a couple of days previously i had a week off from school a week or two off from school and uh, my i was in the company of my father and um uh, he was snapping at me and he was irritable and I, I didn't appreciate it because I wanted him to be happy and there was nothing I could say or do to raise a smile on his face. And when I tried, he would snap back at me. So I was a bit annoyed with him that day on the day he passed away and I didn't really talk to him that much. Anyway, mm. um, I, I normally just drink a solitary cup of tea every morning before I go to work. I can't stomach anything else because that's the way I've always been. So I began to make myself a cup of tea and I poured it out, poured it into my cup. And my dad came over and he's like, and I, I took a sip of, from it and it was a bit hot. So I thought I'll put some milk in it. So I put a tiny bit of milk in and there was a tiniest bit of milk still left in the, in the bottle, in the carton or whatever. And I put it back. I was going to put it back in the fridge and my dad's like, oh, use the rest of the milk. Uh, there's not much left. And again, I just thought it's just dad oh, being 
picky again and annoying me. I was like, no, I don't want to. You know, I kind of snapped back at him. I don't need the milk. I'll... So I drank my milk and then um, I drank my tea. And then uh, I was on my way out and I carried this big box of books that I'd been marking the night before. And he, he, he offered to take them to the car. And I said, no, didn't want his help. And uh, mm -hmm. that was the last time I spoke to him. And off I went and off I went to work. And uh, that day, like any other normal day at work, um, work was a bit difficult. I was an NQT teacher and uh, the the role of an NQT teacher was getting to me. I was getting a bit stressed out with what I was doing. Certain things weren't working. Some of my classes were quite frankly awful. I felt the management at the time were not helping me out. And um, I remember there was one lesson that I, I was observing with another another teacher and she had got the pluck out, which is basically the insides of a lamb's um, heart and lungs. Oh, wow. <laughs> she, she was modeling that to the class. And then at one okay. point, and I was watching, I was just observing. And at one point, she put a, a little tube through uh, the trachea of the lungs and she was inflating it and then we were watching it deflate and she was inflating it and so on and I was watching the lung go up and down and it gave me this little queasy feeling but I didn't think much of it anyway later in the day I don't know I think it was period five I had a I had a I had a period off so I was in the reprographics room and uh, I was getting some photocopying done for the next day and then suddenly somebody came in a teacher came into the reprographics room and said Cal uh, there's a phone call for you your brother's on the line I'm thinking, hey, what? My brother? Why would he want to call school? Why would, why would he? How would he even know the school number? And I immediately thought, well, this, well, there's something wrong here. And I got to the phone. I picked up, and he just said, "Hi, um, uh, Dad's hanged himself. Get home." <laughs> oh gosh. And uh, that's it. I mean, how do you, how do you even make sense of that? And I just mm -hmm. said, right, okay, I'll be coming home. And then um, I quickly grabbed my bag and I said to my colleagues that, look, I've got to get home. Something's happened. I've got to get home. And at that point, I was making my way to my car and my ears were burning. And I, at one point, I got in the car, switched on the engine. Off I went. And Cat Stevens came on and it was his song, uh, The First Cut is the Deepest. Oh, yeah. And I remember listening to it. And mm. then after a few seconds, I realized this, it was on. And I just switched it off because I just wanted to get my mind straight. What was going on? What was I going to do when I got home? Would dad be alive? Is he dead? I didn't even know if he was dead. And I just switched it off and I went home in silence. There was no radio, no music. And I just had this thought in my mind, right, I'm going to get home. I'm going to see my dad in that living room. He's going to be sat there where I left him in the morning. And uh, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to grab him by the lapels and you know, grab him and give him a hug and, and uh, make sure I never leave his side again. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was thinking as I was uh, making my way home. And then um, um, obviously I was driving home in my car and uh, came down the last of the roads, the last of the streets, Pear Tree Crescent. Mm -hmm. And it would be the last, uh, the last point where I could see my house from the first point where I could see my house from when I came yeah. down the street. And as I was coming down, I saw the police tape around uh, the garage and uh, I was calm. I wasn't crying. Mm. I knew at the end of the day, if my dad was dead, he was dead. He wasn't going to come back from that. And I parked the car up. I got out. 
and I made my way towards the back of the garage and there was a police officer there and I was trying to get in the house and they said, look, you can't come in this way. And my cousin was there and he just hugged me and my cousin was like, this is his son and he needs to know what's going on. And the police officer was just like, sorry, you can't come in this way. And I could have kicked off. I could have had a go at them, but I thought there's no point. There's no point. So I went around the front of the house went back into the house from the back and I went inside and there was a few family members there and my mum was there and she was crying. There was a lot of people crying. And I think I kind of accepted what had happened. Um, I didn't cry. And my mum was like screaming at me, put your hands together and pray. There was a picture of the gurus that I had on my wall that I had there for a while. Mm. And normally I wouldn't do that kind of thing because, (laughs) you know, if dad's dead what's praying going to do it's not you know it's not going to bring him back but i did what my mum asked and uh, you know i put my hands together and then obviously a few minutes later i realized hold on my dad's been taken to the hospital and it seems he's still alive <laughs> so one of my cousins and another cousin took me to the hospital mm-hmm. and uh, so we drove down to the hospital and we we drove through the streets of old pear tree that my dad used to take me around and all over the place in the old days. And we were getting closer and closer to the Derbyshire Royal Infirmary, but the traffic was just too much. And uh, the longer we waited, the less time I would have had with my father. So I decided to get out with my cousin. Mm. Uh, we both began running towards the A&E department. And, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, I'm going to run as fast as I could, but... I also kept stopping every now and again because I got tired and thinking it's not going to make any difference, is it? Um, But we got there and at the point of getting there, there were more family members there. And uh, I don't remember much. It's a bit of a blur. Yeah, it's a bit of a blur because the only thing on my mind was my dad and I wanted to know if he was alive. So somebody greeted me at the door having been told that this is Mahinda Singh's son. So they greeted me and said, look, this is a situation. This is what's happening with your dad. And I'll take you through into this little area and you'll be able to see your dad. And uh, I'm going to stop there and just go back a few days now. Because a few days ago, like I said, uh, Manjeet Singh riot of uh, uh, Derby hospitals who worked at the Royal Derby Hospital uh, passed yeah. away due to the coronavirus uh, yeah. pandemic and he was a medical consultant at the A&E, the first ever Sikh that took up that job and he took up that job in 2006 so the other day when I heard about his death I was saddened because he was a fellow Sikh like me and he was from Derby or he worked in Derby like me so I was saddened and I was phoned by, I was I was messaged by BBC Radio 4 asking if I wanted to say any comments about Manjeet and uh, what he was like and, you know, what kind of person he, he was. And I said, look, I'm sorry, but I didn't know him personally. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to talk about the fact that he was from Derby and he was a Sikh and how proud of him I was. But in terms of knowing him, I didn't know him enough to say that. I felt only others that knew him could do him that justice. And then... The, the, a day later, my cousin just messaged me out the blue on Facebook saying, Cal, did you hear about Manjeet? I go, yeah, I heard about him, uh, but I didn't personally know him. She goes, no, you met him on that day that your dad died. He was the guy that was on duty 
when you went in and I was like, I was like, not shocked, but I was like, um, unbelievable. I met this great guy. He was the guy in charge. And I didn't remember it at the time. Although I told my cousin, I do remember another Asian doctor telling me the news that your dad would die and, you know, he was brain dead and he would die. And I'm saying it like that because that other Asian doctor made me accept it straight away that, you know, there was nothing more. They had done all they could for my dad that day. They kept him alive long enough for me to see him and other family members to see him. But he would die. And then as I was thinking about what my cousin said, I realized, you know what, that day I probably did see Manjit and... It would have been such a a moving experience for me because on the day that my dad would have died, I would have seen this Sikh guy with a turban, and mm. uh, I want to I want to have seen him as this high up figure and he's a boss. I would have just seen his seen him as a fellow Sikh like me who was mm. there who would have calmed me down, and I was no doubt calm that day. I didn't cry at all. And he he would have been the guy that most probably have, would have directed me into that room, into that little room where there were like little cubicles and my dad was in one cubicle and the curtains were all closed and he opened up the curtains for me and I went in and I was able to see my dad. And it would have been Manjit that, you know, would have I would have seen that day, although I wouldn't have remembered. But now thinking back, I'm thinking I would have been very grateful that he was there. And he would have calmed me down. He did calm me down. He made me accept the inevitable that my dad would die. And I didn't brow with him or them. I didn't. And his team. I just accepted it because that I'm a man of science. And, you know, you have to accept these things. But in those few minutes that I had with my dad, just at that moment, I was able to say to my dad, look, dad, I'm here. Whether he, whether he listened to what I was saying or not, I don't know, because he could have been brain dead. It could have been... Uh, already gone by then but I knew very well that blood was still flowing through him it was still moving through him it was still going through his heart and as long as I knew that he was still technically alive I was able to say to him dad you know I'm here I'm sorry this happened I'm sorry I couldn't be there for you but I'm here now and and um everything's going to be okay I accept what you've done and uh wow you know, you've got to go and I'm letting you go. And um, so obviously when my cousin told me that Manjita passed away and she told me that it would have been him that day who um, looked after my dad. You can't imagine how much uh, pride I felt at um, him being there in my dad's last uh, few minutes. Now it's so um, yesterday... When we were clapping for the NHS, um, yeah, I don't know if you saw it, but I made sure, uh, out of respect for Manjeet and all the people that died and have died, yeah, obviously mainly the NHS, I made sure to shout out a Sikh Jagara. The Jagara is basically a clarion call. It's a calling to all Sikhs to come together. Jobole Sonehal, which means he who utters shall be elated. And whenever Sikhs call that out, other Sikhs same reply with Sat Shri Akal, which means true is God. So I felt that I needed to say that for him. And uh, I was very, um, you know, very appreciative of his efforts that day to give me those 
last couple of hours with my dad to say goodbye because I'm sorry but there's some people that decide to end their lives by suicide and sometimes they just die on the spot and family members and friends who find them are never able you know to do as I did um, yeah. say yeah. what I needed to say and had my dad died on on that concrete floor in the garage that day and the police had not resuscitated him at the time I would have always felt guilty that I could never have said that mm. to my dad in life but I was always so grateful and I wrote that in my book I was so grateful to those people that resuscitated him that kept him alive although I didn't know at the time that I was writing it that Manjeet had play, played such a big part in that so obviously I'm forever par- proud that a fellow Sikh did come to my father's aid that day yeah so yeah that was the day that my dad died and uh that's so amazing i obviously when i saw my dad in that position that day there i was standing over him in my teaching gear my blazer my id badge around my neck a big beard and i was 26 years old i was an adult i was a a man a grown man and uh, i was crying because my dad had died or was about to die and I remember looking at the corner of the cubicle and there was a little gap and there was a, a nurse just looking in or a member of staff and uh, she could see that I was crying. And normally I might have tried to hide it, but I thought, you know what, it doesn't matter. No. My, dad's, my dad's dying here. I've got mm. nothing to be ashamed about. I've got nothing mm. to be embarrassed about. And uh, I was and able to say goodbye to my dad. You had that chance to say a final message to your dad which sounds like to me is a really important factor in how you process your grief and how you reconcile the events and of course as we know it with coronavirus uh, I can see how triggering that was but also kind of bring back those memories and this realization that the, that consultant that fellow Sikh was there during that time which is a blur when we have to look back and then all these memories come flooding back and it's like, oh, wow, that he was there at that time and he helped. And I really commend you. I really do. It's, it's very hard to go back to that day. And I, 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 it was very moving. And I kind of want to, before rushing into the next thing, I just want to, you know, for the listeners, for yourself, for myself, you know, let's just take this moment to kind of reflect on that. a incredibly difficult thing to go through presumably you're in your 20s I was 26 at the time yeah yeah and then that nurse looking in 
seeing you cry and I I just want to say for someone that was 26 then it's incredible you were so self-aware and you didn't you know it didn't I guess when you're in a crisis mo moment when something so big is happening in your life, nothing else matters. Everything else just kind of disperses. And it doesn't matter who sees you crying or... It doesn't. I think, yeah. I think when I was... As soon as I got that call from my brother, I think I knew that basically my dad, it was, it was over. Mm -hmm. He would be dead or he would be dying and he would never come back. As much as I wanted to believe that science and medicine would save him i was um i was well aware that it would be the end his end was near so i if anything i immediately accepted what was going to happen and there was no point being angry or in a rage mm -hmm. and all these negative emotions taking over me because that wasn't going to help anyone it wasn't going to help me my wife no, yeah. my mom my family and i just wanted to be positive for my dad's sake and i wanted um you know, I get upset now, and I'm not getting upset because I'm scared or I'm angry or I'm frustrated. This is just, this is like the emotion yeah. of pride. It's love as well. You it love is your dad, love. and I'm, I'm I felt so much pride that he that he was my dad, and I also felt pride that he was from Derby. Yeah, I like Derby's, that. Derby's where he lived. Yeah. Darby's where he died as well. And um, I think over the days, that came back. That helped me a lot over the days after he died, whereby people kept coming around my house talking about my dad. And obviously, every time they kept coming, these new faces, they would ask him, um, what happened and how did he die? And I kept having to hear that same story mm. all the time and people having their own opinions and thoughts about why he died and what why he died and what led him to mm. do what he did but I kind of blanked that out after a while mm. and I just sat there quietly but every now and again um, I would get upset and I would get a bit teary-eyed but that was because I used to remember things from the past and the things that made me happy mm. things that we would do and it made me smile and I realised that by um, smiling <clears throat> and being happy, I felt better. So Darby played a big part in that. Because I knew that I was very proud of Darby. My dad was very proud of Darby. Mm. So whatever I did from that moment on in relation to remembering my dad, I would do so in such a way that Darby would play a big part in it and every time I think of Darby and what a great city, city it was and the town it was for him it would make yeah. me proud so I latched on I latched on to my city and all my memories of happiness and that helped a great deal and in all these years ever since my dad has died um, I've done a lot for my city yeah uh, it's comforting it's a comfort to you. It's your identity. It's it is. where you're from and also perhaps the sacrifices definitely. your father made. Because uh, was he born in Derby or he came to Derby when he was young? He was born in the village of Ram, Ram, Ram Rebbe in uh, Namashar in the Punjab in uh, 1954. 
some other 12 year old or so he came to england and uh mm. air tree the pear tree area normanton area is where he first set foot mm. first set his roots and uh so it was a pear tree area that i kept returning to i was still living there at the time mm. and i kept walking around the streets and walking around the same areas that my father would have in the past and what would have made him happy as he was living there and playing around with his brothers and that's where my idea for my story my father and the lost legend of pear tree came in because at the time all i wanted to do i didn't care for anyone else's opinion i knew people didn't really want to talk to me because they would get upset or they might upset me and i kept getting involved in certain things like sharing stories about famous derby people or famous derby landmarks and buildings and i kept sharing these with people and sometimes i kind of got the impression that some people they just didn't really care about derby didn't really care for what i was saying but mm -hmm. they just listened and sometimes you felt that they didn't want to listen anymore so i just you know used to turn away and i used to think you know if they don't want to know about stuff like that i do and it makes me happy so i ended up reading stuff about famous footballers and one particular footballer who he's one of the main heroes in my book um Steve Bloomer, I realised he used to live on the same street as me, one of the greatest footballers that ever lived, and he lived on the same street as me, but he died in 1938. So I ended up reading his biography and finding that out, and then realising that I too wanted to write about my upbringing and my father and his story, but then I realised nobody wants to read about some random Sikh Punjabi bloke in Derby, you know, it's a, it's a suicide story. It's a sad story. Why would people want to read that? And it made me feel <coughs> deflated and down. And then at one point, and I write about this in part two of my book, I realized that I could bring these two stories together and turn, turn it into a positive. And at the time, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I was doing something that would take me to a path where I would do something that would honor my father and all mm. my great heroes in Derby and eventually what happened I ended up building statues to my great heroes with the help of my friend Andrew Edwards and Derby County Football Club mm. and it made me happy because that's the kind of things I like sharing stories about famous heroines and heroes and helping people understand their great contribution to our lives mm. so writing helped me do that by sharing their stories and um, um, statues and so on and we write what we know. Yeah. All, all writers do. Even and the it's the easiest thing to do. It is. It really is. And it's very cathartic. And actually, I am interested in reading that. I am interested in hearing about a Sikh Punjabi man that came to the UK in the 50s as a young boy and what that was like living in Derby. Like, I would be, I don't understand why anyone would not be interested in reading that book. Like, to me, that's a, a, a journey about identity and assimilating yeah. and history and I think it's honestly I think it's so beautiful um really hats off to you hats off to you. Thank you well there's a lot of people that have read my stories and they don't even have to be Punjabi Punjabi folk I've had no. people of Polish heritage Irish heritage Italian heritage read my story and say my parents went through exactly that what you're saying they just spoke different languages but they all they all, you know, experienced what your family went through and uh, 
how they lived and what became of them and what became of their children. We're all the same in that mm. regard. We're all the same. We're children of immigrants mm. that mm. originally came to this country in the 60s, let's say, or the 50s, mm. that planted their roots. And I realized immediately that if I was to remember my father, I had to make sure that I never rejected the community that I came from. So there was this underlying message in the book To Kill a Mockingbird that I first read at school, at Village Community School, um, back when I was a teenager, that basically said, never reject your own community, no matter what faults you find within it. Yeah. That was a perfect analogy of what I was going through. I remember writing that in my father's obituary in the Derby Telegraph. At the time, I didn't know why I was writing it or what it meant. Because if you think about it, my father gave up on life. He, he packed it all in. And there's me writing, never reject your own community, no matter what faults you find within it. What's that all about? My father decided to end his life. And at the time, I couldn't understand why he was ending his life. But I realized many years later, that message wasn't for necessarily for him. It was for me. It was for me to say, no matter what has happened, how badly, even in your own community, how people might let you down or talk negatively or talk badly of you you can't let people go you've got to be there for them and you've got to keep you know sharing your story to help others even if it's just one person and I know I've helped people in the past they've got in touch with me to say that that if it wasn't for my story they would be dead yeah and at the time I knew my father had a mental illness um but I couldn't accept it why? Because, you know, when people die, let's say if they died by cancer, at least they, you can say they had lung cancer. So they died within six months. Lung cancer killed him. But with my dad, I never had that answer to say, why did he die? That's oh, it. he died because of this. Well, after my dad died, the question that kept tormenting me for many years was, did he not love us? How could he do that? I had, I had a brother and sister and a mum. How, how, how did he do that? But I was trying to think of it in a sane mind. And how do you reconcile that then, well, the what, unanswered questions? What happened was eight years down the line, seven or eight years down the line, Robin Williams passed away, yeah. the, the actor, the legendary yeah. comedian. Yeah. And I remember coming home from school that, that day, and it must have been... In, in the Daily Mail, the newspaper, and I remember reading it online, and my kids were sat there just playing away. They were very young. And I remember reading the headline. It said, Robin Williams had passed away because of underlying mental health conditions such as Lewy bodies, dementia, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. And as I began to read the article, I realized here's someone... Besides, you never know why they died, right? You never have an answer. But here in this article, it was telling me that Robin Williams had died by suicide and this was a reason why he died. And as I was reading this about Louis Bodies and uh, the things, the experiences people go through, these, uh, these um, hallucinations, I realised that some of those were the symptoms of my own father. He was at times hallucinating. And I remember he used to tell us that, well, no, he didn't quite tell us. He used to tell us that he, there was something wrong in his mind. But every time we asked him to um, 
you know, uh, tell us more. Yeah. Uh, he would like shut off. And I realized later that the reason he wasn't telling us certain things was he was the father of the house and the father of the house, the leader of the house. It's not good for these leaders to tell their young ones or the people beneath them that they're struggling. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that thing in our South Asian culture, culture where the man is the the breadwinner in the family. So when I was asking my father these questions, he would say something, say as much as he could, and then he was shut down, and it made me frustrated. And then later, I realised the reason he was saying it because he couldn't tell me that in the corner of his eye, or when he was walking down the street, and he would look backward, he would see things, or he'd hear voices. Oh. And he, if he had said that to me or a relative, they would have naturally said, the "Guy's mad. He's so, possessed." So, do you think he maybe had an undiagnosed mental health? He was definitely depressed, so he was taking tablets for it at the time. He was seeing a mental health therapist, mm. and the mental health therapist was obviously not sharing that kind of information with us. But a couple of years after my dad died, I began seeing this same mental health therapist because at the time, we, my wife and I were going to have our first child, and I began to feel anxious thinking, if and when we do have our first child, what if I turn into my dad? What if I have this? similar mental health difficulties I actually at one point thought I was bipolar because I would get very low and then sometimes I'd get very high very high very 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 high Mm. talking very fast and then I would have a big um it was like it would like a balloon would pop and I'd feel absolute deflation and go to my lowest point again Mm. I'd get so high and then fall back down it's like that song by Marina and the diamonds, none. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and so on. Anyway, so I went to see the doctor, and the doctor uh, referred me to a mental health therapist. So I ended up seeing the same mental health therapist that my father was seeing. And in a way, I think it might have helped him, that the fact that I was there now talking about my father, and he knew my father died by suicide. And I wasn't blaming him, because no. it's not what you do. But by talking to him, uh, and I explain a lot of this in my second the part two of my uh, story the second book by talking to him I was able to um, get things off my mind and sometimes we would talk about things that weren't even to do with mental health it was yeah. just we talk about Derby County Football Club or the fact that he was of Irish heritage and he used to live around the corner and he had a similar life to me mm. and I remember he he wrote a note and he said to me what out of this talking what do you hope to get from this what what goal what do you want to achieve from this and I said all I want to do I just want to do something that makes my father proud mm. of me and I think eventually I got to that point so when Robin Williams did pass away I told my wife I go look come in here look it says Robin Williams passed away because he had a mental health condition Lewy bodies dementia Parkinson's Alzheimer's my dad had a trauma just before he passed away the trauma of losing his brother and sometimes yes. a trauma can lead to something like that. I'm not saying my dad had Louis bodies, but again, he had another trauma in 1993. I was uh, about 12 years old. And for a week, my and I write about this in part one of my book, um, for a week, my father was on a life support machine, having had an incident outside our house where he was attacked by a group of youths. So he went off oh to the hospital. Gosh. Whilst he was at the hospital, in the same DRI that I visited him in when he died in 2006 he was sitting there in A&E and suddenly the night 
everything that happened during that night must have got to him and he blacked out for a split second and as he did so his head rolled forward and he slammed his head into the concrete floor of the DRI and he knocked himself out he choked on his own vomit and he was on a life support machine for a week and the police came to my school the village community school and in an assembly not knowing that I was in the assembly they told everyone all the kids in attendance that an incident had happened a couple of days later a man had been beaten up he hadn't been beaten up he'd just been hit on the head um, but anyway crazy anyway, the police, police came into my school the police came into my school to tell everybody that and I was standing there absolutely pissed off that they had used the words beaten up and then not only that they then said that he was going to die <laughs> okay then wow. me, as a 12 year old thinking that's screw you. screw you he's not yeah. going to die because I've refused to believe he was going to die so I went home that day walking had a chat with a couple of people on the way and I got home and my mum's there at the inside the living room and all these people are there talking and praying and whatnot and I and I was upset but I composed myself I kept it all in I got to the door and I said to my mum composed <laughs> I said mum the police came to our school today and the policeman said my dad was going to die mm. what was and her as response soon, <laughs> as soon as I said the last word came out of my mouth so I began choking up and getting upset and I ran off upstairs because I couldn't contain it anymore I think she is my dad's going to die but my mum chased after me and started laughing at me and smiling and saying, he's not going to die. And then um, a few days later, he uh, came out. He came off life support mm. and he lived for another, I don't know, 13 years of it. And I'm so proud of him that he came back. That's the thing, you see, he'd already come back from death once. So when he was on on death's door the second time I had to accept it that he, he could have died when I was 12 mm. I had to let go at 26 so, so there's a lot of trauma here with other events and other factors yeah. and I, I just wonder because we talked about South Asian communities you know being the man of the house the struggle, assimilation do you think the reason why we don't talk so openly about mental health and depression within South Asian communities is perhaps because it's been passed down by generations and what our parents and grandparents had gone through when they first came to the UK? Um, what, why, do you, why do you think it is that we can't easily have that conversation? It's just the way it is. Punjabi fathers find it very difficult to talk to their children about things that they shouldn't be talking about. They are the leader. They are the man of the house. They are the breadwinner. They shouldn't be talking about these things. And I realized that after my dad died, the same burden was going to be put on me. And I wasn't even a father at that time. Mm. And I remember when my dad's brother died, people kept coming up to him and saying, your eldest brother is dead now. The next eldest is dead now. There was another that was still alive. But you are now the head of our Dinsa family. And I was thinking, that's not fair on my dad. He was all, always playing this role anyway and for people to now come along and say you're the man in charge now that was even more pressure and burden on him and a effect an effect 
a consequence of that to me was that after my father died, I realized that I was never going to go down that route where people were constantly asking me to do things for them and constantly making sure that I did do that. Because my father was always a very proud man. If somebody asked him to do something, he would do it and he would make sure he, do, he would do it well. Because if he didn't do it well, it would reflect badly on his father, my granddad. And mm. he never liked that. He never wanted that. So my father always did his utmost best to help people out. But in his moments of... Um, uh, when he was at home, let's say, and he used to have a few drinks sometimes to let off steam... Um, he this bitterness bitterness would would rise to the surface, and the bitterness would be him saying, "Oh, I've helped such and such person, and they never helped me." And I used to think, "Well, don't help them then." But in his sober state, he could never turn somebody down. Yeah. And uh, so when it came to, and also when my father was taking this medicine for his depression, he had to stop drinking. You see, because the doctors had said, "Don't mix your tablets with the drink." So what that meant, he was now sober at all times. And when you're drunk, your feelings come out, your emotions come out, and you could talk mm. about it. You might be drunk and peed, peed, peed out your head, but, you know, you could talk about it. But when he was sober, he was unable to talk. He didn't have that uh, freeness to talk about things like that. So it didn't help him. And to be honest, I, I haven't drank in terms of to be getting pissed out my head since 1999 I think it was uh what's that 20 odd years I haven't wow. drank in that sense I drank when my daughter was born but I was in the company of people I trust again I talk about why I quit drinking in my first book anyway my dad mm. couldn't talk about these things so yeah. back, back to that Robin Williams thing as soon as I told my wife I asked my uh, mental health therapist look Chris um I've just read this in the Daily Mail do you think my dad could have had an underlying mental health condition like Louis Bodies? He's like he said, look, we we didn't do a post mortem after his death, or we didn't look into why this might have happened. So I can't give you a definite answer, but it was more than obvious that he had depression, and it's more than likely that a trauma could have caused what then led to him. And that's the answer I needed after all these years. That the reason my dad died was because mental illness had corrupted his mind and that's what led him to do what he did in a moment where his mind was unbalanced and that's what led him to do what he did and as soon as I accepted that the 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 weight of the world lifted off my shoulders and I accepted that my dad died not because somebody had said something to him one day and he thought that's it I'm going to do this he died because he was, at that moment in time his mind was not in a sane state at mm. that moment in time and that's why he died okay so, so we get so when it comes to reconciling events especially when it's complicated death or grief there are unanswered questions yeah. so we we come to a reflection of the fact that we are able to reconcile some events in our mind and get to an acceptance stage, which we often hear when people are grieving and they go through their process. So you did some work there, you did some intense work there and you processed. And I, I guess I want to kind of move on to talk about Sikh funerals because yeah. um, I'm Muslim. I know how Muslim funerals run. I've never been to a Sikh funeral, but my best friend is Sikh yeah. and I've known her from a very young age. And uh, her father died a, a while back, uh, about 
oh God, I think it was about two years ago now, quite suddenly. And she was talking me through what Sikh funerals are like and what they look like for her. Uh, and I have so much love for her because that was such a sudden and un unexpected thing. Um, it came out of nowhere. And I, I would like to talk to you if it's okay, if it's easy. You, you know, you don't have to go into all the details, kind of explain it in a way that feels good for you what Sikh funerals can look like because I realise that it's different in individual families because families have in like a different culture so you know you could have two or three Sikh people or two or three Muslim families uh, but a funeral can look different depending on what the family culture is yeah. if that if that makes sense and I just wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing what that kind of looked like for you when you know you you guys then eventually had to organise your dad's funeral and yeah what your message looked like um i've touched upon all this in part one of my book straight after mm -hmm. obviously my dad died I, I go into what happened and the whole process of all that but basically what happened was obviously after my dad died um there was a period of uh, mourning we call it an a source where people come to your house you lay down the sheets people are able to come down pay their respects talk the men and women are separated off you can have your you can have your conversations with whoever you want. Again, that was a bit difficult because sometimes, you know, when you're stuck in with the men who don't tend to talk about these things and feelings, you're not always going to have those conversations. Sometimes it's better to talk to a woman. But with these Sikh funerals, sometimes you can't have that time to do so unless it's one-to-one. -one. Um, but what happened? Yeah, so over a series, uh, over a series of days, a few days, uh, the Guru, um, Guru Granth Sahib, the Sikh uh, holy book, was... Uh, brought into our house in Pear Tree. A, ro a room was like cordoned off, which was my mother and father's um, bedroom previously, where the Sikh uh, holy book is placed and people come to the house and pay their respects, do their matatek, sit down, contemplate. So over a few days, that was what was happening. But prior to that, when we had, to, I remember when we first had to vacate the room, um, it all hit home because I had to take the bed out, I had to take all the things that were on the walls off, I had to remove his jacket off the back of the door and it all hit home that my dad was dead and he wasn't coming back. I rifled through his pockets to see what was in them. I saw I saw a glasses case that had his, uh, well, it had the name of two of my cousins and their phone numbers in there, which at the time I thought was very odd. But then later I realised that he had kind of been planning his suicide, I guess. And had he not done it at home, he would have done it, let's say, somewhere else. And had he done it somewhere else, he would have had that glasses case on him. And my cousin's names and phone numbers would have been on there. And then the police would have phoned them and said, do you know this guy? You know, so you understand mm -hmm. where I'm getting at here, what I'm getting at here. But mm -hmm. he chose to die at home. So you avoid that problem. But yeah, so over the course of those few days, um, there was one point where I had to go and uh, visit my dad at the at the funeral parlour in Normanton, in, in close to town, and there were a few family members there, and I had to stand there in the company of my uh, uncles and uh, family members, and we had to wash my father's body. Okay, interesting. Pay pay our respects in that manner to make sure he was all uh, looking smart for the big day, let's say, mm. and I and um. Obviously, at a Sikh funeral, on the day of the funeral, when the body's brought into the house, 
uh, you open up the coffin and you see your loved one. And in my case, in my father's case, he was wearing a turban. But previous to that, when we did wash his body that day, um, I made sure to leave some items in his uh, possession, in his coffin that day. So I explained what I left in my book. But I'll name a couple of things. I like, uh, I left a pen in his uh, blazer pocket. He always carried a pen. I um, I used to wear these Lance Armstrong Live Strong bands. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. Obviously, uh, Lance Armstrong uh, went all a bit pear-shaped in the end, but the message was still strong, live strong, you know, be a good person, live strong. I put one of those bands around him because I didn't want to give him a gutter. Um, I put a couple of other things with his body to remember him. I put a clip-on tie around his neck because mm. I had a few because I worked in a school and I always liked to wear clip-on ties. <laughs> I made a joke of it with my kids that I used to wear clip-on ties in case any member of staff grabbed me from the tie and uh, pulled at me. But obviously, in relation to the way my dad died, the last thing I wanted was for another noose to be wrapped around his neck. Mm. Uh, he was cremated, so I made sure to give him a clip-on tie. But yeah, in relation uh, to the day of his funeral, it was held in Pear Tree. Many, many folk came to pay their respects. I was there with my family members, my brother and sister. We carried him into the house, made some room for him in the living room, put his um, coffin out, opened the coffin. People prayed over him. There was a lot of crying. Um, mm. May have shed some tears. I can't remember now, but I tried to keep composed. And I think what was on my mind at the time was... What tends to happen at Sikh funerals when you make your way to the crematorium is that community leaders kind of take over or a, or a, a high up member of the family takes over and they say a few words or sometimes they don't. They say like the Sikh scriptures and they say some Punjabi words, but they never say anything in English. And I, I wanted to make sure that when my dad went off, I wanted to say something to see him off and not just have those people say their thing and then I come along and press the button and he gets cremated. So on the way to the crematorium, I, w I went down with my cousin sat in his car because I wanted to go alone. And I had these thoughts in my mind saying, um, I wanted to send him off by saying things. And if I hadn't said anything that day, I would have regretted it. And I would have been disappointed with myself. And as I said to you before, I'm quite a shy person. and I don't tend to like to stick my neck out and share stuff. But when it's done for the right reasons and it has to be said, then I tend to do it, even if I make mm. a even if I make a clown of myself or if I mm. end up crying as I not crying, but if I get upset like I've done today. Um, so yeah, on the day when we got in there, when we took his body, we took him in, we laid him out, you know, um, we laid the coffin out, and then things were said in Punjabi. Things were recited in Punjabi and then I decided to speak up for my dad that day and I stood up and as much as I'm a teacher and I'm used to talking in front of 20, 30 kids, here I was talking in front of, I don't know, 200, 300 people and I was talking in English to help those people that could understand English mm. to get a kind of idea of what I was saying. But there was a moment that came along where I had to say something in Punjabi and I wanted to do it because there's a... There's, a, there's something in our culture called the Sikh National Anthem. And it was something that was writ written by our 10th Guru, Guru Gobind Singh Ji. And uh, 
the first line is De Shiva but Moy Hair and it goes on to, you know, the Sikh spirit and how when bad things happen, you just gotta take them you gotta take them on, head on, stand mm. firm, strike hard and just take it. Just take it. Mm. And if, even if you're gonna die, even if you know you're gonna lose, even if you know there's no chance of getting through, you've got to stand strong. This idea of Jardikla never losing your positivity so i decided to recite the national seek anthem let's call it right so i did it in punjabi and uh, <laughs> i remember one of my friends at the end his his dad he was also there he's a big up member of a, a Sikh organization here in the uk and he goes to his son to tell me he goes that he goes you know he's but brave that means very brave or yeah big, you know yeah yeah and, quite funny but our brave sounds like an american native indian type name and he yeah. has been a punjabi indian but yeah and he go although he did uh question some of my pronunciation of some of the punjabi words but it didn't matter because what i needed to say for my father i said it and mm. i was happy and i had never regretted not mm. saying it. so mm. yeah so um you know the button was pressed and off my father went to be cremated and then off we went to the Gurdwara, the Guru Arjan Dev Gurdwara in the pear tree. And when people die, it doesn't matter if they die by suicide and so on, they can die by any way. But there tends to be this um, particular, I'll call it a song, a hymn that they recite at the end of the event at the Gurdwara. And even before my father died, whenever I used to go to funerals, I actually like going to funerals because I like paying my respects and mm. I like always like to see the amount of people that showed up. Yeah. And so that helped me with my dad. Anyway, so at the Godwara, um, they played this uh, hymn and I knew when it was coming, I knew that would lift my spirits and I was sat there and as soon as it came on, it did lift my spirits. Again, I talk about what the hymn was called and um how it made me feel and it made me feel so proud yeah my dad was dead and i knew life was never going to be the same again but i was a sikh i was a sikh from derby and i was so proud of that and uh it helped me it helped me a lot over the next few years again again there have been times along the way where certain community members have not treated me very well no to me trying to look after my community and my people when I've actually stuck out my neck for my people in the hope of helping them to keep them safe and I've been called all sorts but you know what that's just the way I am and I'm going to continue to do so so yeah yeah you keep doing you <laughs> that's basically what happens during Sikh funerals yeah. obviously very insightful at, at this time with the coronavirus the corona pandemic it's very difficult for Sikh funerals to take place in such a manner I mean, if a person died, those people cannot go to the to the homes of the people that died to congregate yeah. because govern, the government instructs them to stay away. So then, you know, it's very difficult. And sadly, a lot of people have died. A lot of Sikhs will die and so on. A lot of Muslims, Hindus who will have similar approaches. I know in terms of the Islamic faith, Muslim funerals tend to happen very, very quickly. They do. You know, as soon as they as soon as someone dies, they're cremated, sorry, they're buried straight away and so on. So yeah. sometimes you don't even get that chance to even have found out someone has died. Obviously, in India, in the old days, where they'd be 
Sikh Muslim and so on. Um, they try to get the funerals out straight away. Yeah, they do. Because it's not the best environment to keep a body preserved. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Obviously, in this day and age, in this nation, we can preserve a body for a lot longer. They can mm -hmm. be preserved for a lot longer should mm -hmm. they need to be tested or post-mortems and all that. But obviously, with everything that's happened, these funerals tend to be rushed now. So it's very difficult for people to pay their respects. So I say, you know, if you're one of those people, just try and find a way to adapt, try and find a different way to engage that allow you to remember someone. Mm -hmm. Because that's the greatest thing you can do when someone dies is to remember them, not how they died, but how they lived and try and reflect that and try and share those good, happy memories. Because that's what allows people to live forever. Mm -hmm. The fact that they never die. And obviously, in the case of suicide, when someone dies, it's very difficult for people to be forgotten because their loved ones don't talk about that person. Their families don't talk about the person and how they died. And they almost, if you don't talk about someone, they're going to die because you've forgotten about them. And that is so mm -hmm. sad. And I was never going to miss never going to allow that to happen with my dad and I was never going to allow that to happen with other people that have died in a similar manner. Thank you so much for sharing a deeply personal account of what happened on the day and the funeral. I really appreciate it and um, that was some really nice guidance you gave at the end in relation to funerals during COVID-19 and also how to find ways uh, in order to remember someone and honour someone and uh, perhaps not spend too much time on how they died. I mean, my, my dad died early on in the year and it's still a bit of a process for me to move away from how he yeah. died versus how he actually lived his life. Yeah, it does is, take time. It, it massively and it's something that I'm struggling with, if I'm honest. And my sisters are always constantly telling me you need to remember what his life was, not yeah. that last moment that ruined, you know, don't let that last moment ruin everything. Yeah. But, but anyway, I'll, you know, I'll come back to my story at the end of the season. But I just want to say thank you because we're going to get close to wrapping up the podcast now. But before we do that, just a couple of items. Um, I want to ask you very quickly about cancelling and accessing therapy services. Did you get any counselling after your father died? What did that look like? Who was that with? Well, as I said earlier, um, it took me a year and a bit around the time my daughter was going, well, around the time my first child was going to be born, which was a daughter, for me to think, you know what, I've got to get myself some help here. I, I am writing things down. I'm, I, I am having conversations with myself, but I need to talk to someone in the medical health profession and I think there's something wrong with me at the time I thought there was something wrong with me and I was worried that if I didn't open up and speak up that I might go down the same path as my father so what I did I ended up making a, an appointment with my GP at first and uh, I made sure to talk about this with my wife first and she thought it was a good idea so off I went to see my GP and uh, there he was behind his desk listening to what I was saying, me rattling on about um, the fact that I think I might be bipolar or I might have some mental health condition. And I, re and I remember that was only when that only when I said that my father had died by suicide, that suddenly he seemed to spark into a reaction and look up and think, oh, right, hold on. Um, Let's touch more upon this. So it was only when I mentioned the fact that my father died by suicide that he then thought, 
you know what? I don't think you've got bipolar. And this is another thing that is a bit frustrating. He told me I didn't have bipolar or he told me I didn't have a certain condition because he goes that most people, when they come to me and they say they have this, that, the and the other, chances are they don't have it because most people that do have this, that and the other aren't aware that they mm. are out, um, uh, have got um, schizophrenia or bipolar, right? Yeah, and yeah. sometimes when you when you research into a topic and you think, oh, I've got that, you're ticking off the boxes. Oh, I'm a snappy, I'm irritable. So he's like, I don't think you've got bipolar. I don't think you've got this. But what he did do for me goes, he, he said he was going to pass me on to a mental health therapist in his, uh, in his surgery, which he did. So a couple of weeks later, I made my first uh, appointment with uh, my mental health therapist. And ever since then, you know, I've been seeing him on and off and now he's on my Facebook. So I don't even have to see him. So he <laughs> knows exactly what I get up to. And, you know, he could see the signs if things are wrong and whatnot. So what I'm saying is seeing a mental health therapist was the best thing I ever did because it opened me up to talking. And I, I immediately said to him, I don't want any drugs. I don't want any medicine because I knew what I'd done for my father. Yeah. But sadly, sometimes there are some people that will need drugs and medicine. I'm yeah. not saying I'm not saying that this can be cured without medicine, right? What I'm saying is, for me, counselling helped. Seeing a mental health therapist helped without the need for the drugs, right? It helped me. But obviously, there'll be people that will need drugs because there's a poem I think that reflects this to me quite well um the idea that you know maybe i can just recite the poem to be honest uh, yeah do do um actually i'll recite it yeah recite it now it's not a long one it's called low some days i just wake up and feel utterly deflated down and exhausted as if medically sedated i don't do drugs drink alcohol or drag on rolled joint so what is it exactly that makes me think, what's the point? After years of introspection, in the hope of finding a cure, I finally found an explanation that makes me feel a little more secure. The lows seem to be due to a chemical imbalance in my brain. When I get really down, and there's no obvious reason that could explain. Previously, I would work myself into a gloomy, depressed state by trying to pin down my low morale on having far too much on my plate. But now I realize that it's not a diagnosis that I seek. It's just the chemicals in my body playing games, so to speak. <clears throat> so that poem is basically me saying that sometimes, yes, I do get down, but it might not be that I've got a mental illness. It could be, it could be something like the weather. It could be something that I'm, because I'm locked away, that I get down or it could be that you know what there's something that's just not going right at that time point in time in my body the chemicals are at an imbalance so I'm feeling low and in my weird sense of mind I'm then trying to pinpoint that onto the fact that somebody might have swore at me on Facebook or something and sometimes it's not as simple as that so when you get down don't think you know that you have to pin a reason onto it and it's because People don't hate her like you or people hate you. It might just because, might just be because, you know, that's just 
the chemicals in your body. Can I, can I just say that was to me sounded like award-winning poetry, very very beautiful. Um, carry on writing. I was really moved by that. I've done many more. I'm not going to share any more. No, but it made me feel very teary just hearing it. And um, I think so many people that will be listening and our guests uh, will be able to relate to to that. They'll be able to relate to low. Yeah. Yeah. Which I want to just quickly ask. Um, so you had this amazing mental health therapist and that's fantastic. Was it like a, a BAME mental health therapist? Did that matter to you? No, he was a he was of Irish heritage. English, okay. let's say. Um, did, that, did that matter to you? Or, like, do you have any feelings about that? It's just because I've been discussing it quite heavily yeah. on the podcast. This mental health therapist was the same one that had seen my father, you see. Yeah, yeah. Now, in terms of me, it didn't matter at all because we had that same uh, language that we could uh, engage in. Yeah. Everything he said to me, I could understand. Everything I said to him, he could understand. Mm. Obviously, when I dipped into uh, Punjabi culture and that lot, some things might have been a bit skewed for him, but he was of Irish heritage. They share a similar they experience. Do. They do. So that was perfectly fine for me yeah. and him. Yeah, that obviously, works. Obviously, he saw my dad. And my father's grasp of the English language wasn't always the greatest. He mm. found it difficult to even engage in Punjabi at times, like I was saying <laughs> to you. Yeah. So it might have helped that if it was a beam counsellor or a mental health therapist in my father's um, instance but they weren't available to him at the time oh I see maybe maybe if I could have gone on these appointments with him or my sister but he didn't ask us to be there maybe he was embarrassed that's the thing wow. you see it, you that's keep going back to that barrier that people have of pride and honour mm. and, and how how crippling it is to be affected by a mental illness. I've said before in the past, this whole idea of Jardi Klai and the Sikh community, Jardi Klai is all in relation to positive, positive high spirits, how no matter what happens, you've got to look on the bright side of life and just get through it. Yeah, that's all good and well if you're of a sane mind and nothing brings you down. But if you've got a mental illness that has corrupted your mind, you couldn't care less about Jardikla. Yeah. You're not going to yeah. accept it. You can go yeah. to the mosque, you can go to the Gurdwara, yeah. listen to all you want, all the prayers, all the hymns, all the recitals. Religion alone is not going to save you yeah, or hey. save your life. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't care who I offend by saying that. It's not. No, I hear you. 100%. You've got, you've got to seek medical assistance as well. Yeah, and yeah. that's not me saying totally ignore religion. That's me saying they've got to work hand in hand. Yeah. That's why these religious centers, these religious establishments need people like me, even though I might not be a baptized Sikh that has a full beard and turban and whatnot and everything <laughs> else. I know what I am, though. I, know, yeah. I, I, I identify as a Sikh. As much as certain people say to me, you're not Sikh, you haven't got long hair. You haven't got this. You well, it's what's on the inside, isn't it? It's exactly. And that's the reason why I choose not to be baptised as a Sikh at this moment in, in my life. Because I know there's people out there that look like me who, when they have something to say and want to say it, and they say it, sometimes they get talked down and say, shut up, we don't want to hear your talk. You're not even a real Sikh. Screw you. I'll, you know, I'll say what I want. And if it annoys people like you, then so be it. That's not me saying I disrespect my faith. 
it's me saying maybe I don't have much respect for these so-called community leaders mm. who think they know better when they should be helping us. But instead, yeah, yeah. they're just pushing our people under the carpet so that we don't bring our community down by talking about things like domestic violence or sexual abuse or suicide or, or alcohol like drinking or alcohol alcohol. Abuse. Yeah, yeah yeah so what i would say then i think our collective message here is that look systemic and structural racism already exists we already live under an oppressed system in my perspective so i feel like our communities we need to rise and work together and kind of aid that open dialogue about having open conversation alongside faith and spirituality and so forth and we just need to rise our communities need to rise and be more united in order for us to really help each other out and just really listen yeah so, we need to engage more talk mm, more and you know listen open. And work together be open, be open yeah yeah so now i really want to would love it if you would share your favorite memories of your father and then we'll move on to the gratefulness challenge my memories of my father when i think back i just remember a guy (laughs) when he was out of the house when he was doing things he would gladly walk around the streets with a smile making sure to address everyone asking if they were okay being nice um everyone had a good word to say about him and it's for that reason I do what I do you know if I do good things I do it because I am the son of Mahinder Singh and I want people to say he is the son of Mahinder Singh not the guy who died by suicide but the guy that used to you know live in a pear tree and do so much for his community and I want people you know to remember him for that so good memories are just my dad being himself and being proud of who he was his roots his identity and helping people along that's very beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thank so you. this brings me to give you a moment to share how people can reach you on social media and where they can purchase your book. Yep. Yeah, so on social media, uh, my Twitter username is at CalSir. So that's K-H-A-L-S-I-R. So I tend to uh, share a lot, well, retweet a lot about the things that I find interesting and the talking points that are going on. I tend to every now and again share some of my poems. Like I said, most of them tend to be quite short. So I either share them on Twitter, at Calser, or on Instagram, at Calser. I've obviously got a Facebook page. I think I'm on under there as Cal Winder Singh Dinser author. In terms of my books, which I've released many over the years and continue to keep sharing my poetry, uh, you can find me on Amazon just type in Calwinder Singh Dinser and you'll see both my memoirs there, part one and part two of My Father and the Lost Legend of Pear Tree. You'll also see quite a lot of my poetry collections that uh, I continue to just write and put out there. My latest release was a collection of uh, poems about Derby, <laughs> an A to Z of Derby, which was uh, iconic fi- figures in the history of Derby. So each letter had a little... Uh, poem and uh, an illustration attached to it I'm currently working on another the release of another collection which is a collection of about a hundred and so poems called the Nor Man Turn collection which will will be released in the next few months I think and that poem I uh, recited earlier called Low will be in there and I feel that with this poetry this next collection that I will be releasing it's a lot more personal it's a lot more in relation to my experiences and how I feel and getting things off my chest when I go around 
the block for a long walk and a lot of it does uh, concentrate on mental health and identity so yeah if you want to see more of my poems hear more of my poems i'm on soundcloud as well uh cal's uh cal windersingden so that's how you get hold of me and now that brings us to the gratefulness challenge and what this is is we share one thing that we are each grateful for in the here and now and it can be anything big or small would you like to go first or shall i you go for it and then i can work from there okay so i would just like to say in this episode because it is dedicated to our grandfathers and fathers i think that it's very important that we learn from one another i feel in this moment that i'm grateful for learning when we learn from one another and have open dialogue, this is where change can happen. And I'm thankful for learning. I'm thankful for being here with you, Kalwinda, in this moment. Thank you. Right. Based on what you said there, I have to be very grateful that there are people like you in this world and people with your ability to share stories such as myself and others that allow us to share our stories that allow us to then hopefully help others. The thing is, you see, my father's been dead. He's, he's passed away. He's been dead for 14 years now. And as I said to you earlier, it took me eight years to finally accept his death and to be able to move on with my life. I know with you and the death of your father, that you are at this moment finding it difficult to come to terms with that. But what I am trying to do by sharing my story is allowing people to come to terms with a death much sooner and quicker, having accepted what's happened so that people like you, me and everyone else can move on that much quicker. By that, I mean not forgetting what happened. What I mean is the sooner you can accept what's happened, and move on and be happy and take the positives from the life that has been lost the longer you have to live your life in happiness so i'm grateful that i am able to share my story on these platforms such as yourself and hoping that someone it might only be one person today has listened to what i've said what you've said and they can use that learning experience to you know, change their life and know that as bad as it got on the day that my father died and the darkness did envelop me and I thought that there would never be the light at the end of the tunnel and I'd never get out, it did eventually come. It took eight years, maybe a tiny bit longer, but the light will return back in your life and make sure it returns with the memories of these loved ones left behind. That was Kawinda Sindinsa, who was talking to me about his father, who died by suicide in 2006. Kawinda was 26 years old. A beautiful, beautiful poem that brought tears to my eyes. Low will be published later this year. Shout out to Kawinda. I hope that we were able to reach as many people as possible in today's episode. As always, I am your host, Kosima Ali. Which brings me to say a massive thank you to our subscribers and our listeners. Early on in the year, we reached way over a thousand downloads. Thank you so much if that was you. And if you tapped that star rating and left us a generous review. 
However, for those of you that forgot, you can jump back into the Apple podcast and tap your star rating. It takes one second. I know many of you said we don't have an iPhone, so how do we do it? Well, your friends and family members might, so reach out to them and perhaps you can drop the star rating or review via their phone. We really need the support. We're a very small podcast with no funding or big brand backing. It means that our guests and I get a further reach in this very necessary and important conversation. If you want to reach out to us on social media, you can find us on Twitter. The handle is at Bereavement Room. On Instagram, it's at Bereavement Room. Or if you want to get in touch with me personally, on Twitter, it's at Kolsima Ali. We are looking for more guests, so if you're interested in appearing on the podcast, do DM me. Thanks for tuning in. I am your host, Kolsima Ali.